No need for applause, thank you. <laughs> All right. All right, well, turn to book, the book of Acts, please. Acts chapter 1. I was up here dissecting and operating on the message today. I uh, have seven pages of notes, of which I probably just cast out three or four of them, and uh, we'll see how it goes. Maybe tonight I'll talk about a couple of things that I wanted to address this morning. One of the things I wanted to address was tongues, and I'm not going to have time to do that. If I did that this morning, we would spend probably the, the, the bulk of our lesson on the tongues and why they were there and the purpose of them and things, and I don't want to deal with that today or this morning. Uh, I think it's important that we learn things like that, but I think that also we want to take the time to exalt and magnify the Lord this morning, and I feel we can do that a little better if we focus on a couple of the scriptures we'll look at today as well. So maybe tonight, I think maybe I'll, I'll just wrap this up. I have a message already ready for tonight, and it was so good. I'm sorry you're not going to hear it probably now. It was really probably one of the best messages I would ever have preached, but uh, you'll, you'll have to come and listen to this. But we'll see how it goes, okay? Nonetheless, Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Let's go ahead and look at this. Uh, again, it says here in Acts chapter 1, we're in the New Testament, of course, and uh, we are, uh, boy, I'll tell you, this is a great passage, but the Bible says, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and under the uttermost part of the earth. Now we see in the passage, it's pretty simple, we've discussed this over and over again, but they say that repetition is the key to learning. That they were to remain in Jerusalem while waiting for the Holy Spirit to descend. We also realize that he assured them that it wouldn't be long till he did indeed come. Now, the disciples asked him about a coming kingdom, and why not? That's something they had heard about their whole life. It's something that they had anticipated in their relationship and in their walk with Christ over the last three years. They had anticipated, based on Scripture and prophecy, that he would ultimately be elevated to sit on the seat or throne of David, and the nation of Israel would be elevated above all the other nations. Why wouldn't they ask, is this not the time? Jesus doesn't point his finger and say, you're so wicked, you're so selfish, you're so all about you. No, he just simply says, it's not for you to know that. But what it is for you to understand is that ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. That's what he points out. So he reminds them, you don't need to know about that right now. What you need to know is that you're going to receive power and you're going to become witnesses unto me. Amen. Then we come to Acts chapter 1 verse 9. And the Bible says, And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And so the Lord ascends back to heaven, leaving the disciples with a promise, and leaving them with a command. The promise ye will receive power, shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And the command, ye shall be witnesses unto me. And from our Lord's last command, we arrive at our theme this year, soul purpose. Jesus commanded them to be witnesses. What an undertaking, what a responsibility that is. What a privilege it is to be asked by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a witness of him. He had come to seek and to save that which was lost. And now he's extending that option and opportunity to them, should I say. It's not an option, really. But he's handing over the baton. He's passing down the mantle to his disciples and to those that would ultimately follow to say, listen, I came to seek and to save. Now you're going to do that on my behalf. And so the sole purpose that he had come so many years before to take care of, he now passes down to them. And as we looked at the scriptures, we realized, even though Acts chapter 1 verse 8 introduces this thought to us, the fact is, is that it began many, many years ago, even in the Garden of Eden. 
and we took the time to go throughout that whole process. Jesus Christ, of course, the Creator, and God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit came together and created all things. And we see there in Genesis chapter 1, right on through verse chapter 2, that He had made it wonderful, and it was great. And it was so wonderful and so great that He was able to rest. But His rest was interrupted by the sinfulness of mankind. And so when man sinned, God's rest ended. And he picked up his work again, not the work of material creation, but this time the work of redemption and restoration. And throughout the entire Old Testament, we've noted now as we've gone through, whether it be Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham and Isaac, the Passover lamb, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, the day of atonement, the scapegoat, the prophesied savior, the crucified Christ, the rent veil. As we look through all of those and address each and every one of those, we realize that they were simply pictures that pointed to Jesus Christ who would ultimately come and take our place on Calvary and pay for our sin. He provided them a means by which they could be reconciled to him, uh, in a sense, a means by which they could be restored into fellowship, at least temporarily, until Christ would come and lay down his, his life completely for them and make the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, and pay the penalty of sin once and for all. And he did just that. And then he died on Calvary. And before he died, he said, It is finished. He had fulfilled all the demands of a righteous God. He became our propitiation. He fulfilled the Old Testament. He literally followed it to a T. And he ultimately paid the price of sin, death, for you and me. God, each and every time, is simply pointing out his sole purpose and his need to restore and to redeem fallen man. And now... As he used Israel to represent him on earth and to proclaim his grace and his goodness among the nations, he now turns to the church. He now turns to the church. The disciples had witnessed the life of Jesus Christ. They had witnessed the resurrection. But there was still something missing. Before ascending, Christ had instructed them to patiently wait for the promised one. Before they were to fulfill the command to be witnesses unto him, they were to wait for the promise and the power. And again, that promise was, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So in order for them to fulfill their sole purpose, as outlined at the ascension, they would need empowering. It wasn't enough that they had just seen Christ through his life, that they had witnessed the miracles. It wasn't enough that they had even recognized and, and seen him in his resurrected state. It wasn't enough that they stood there at the mount and watched him ascend back into heaven. That wasn't enough. They needed empowered. So we turn to Acts chapter 2, please, beginning in verse 1. We're going to see the empowering of the church. If the sole purpose that we have that has been rendered to us by the Lord is going to be fulfilled, we're going to have to have a supernatural power then. Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost arriving. The Lord Jesus Christ had resurrected and he had spent 40 days outlining truth and sharing with the disciples uh, many of the obstacles I'm sure that he expected them to face along the way and now, 10 days, he's been ascended, and now we're seeing the Holy Spirit come back. Christ returning in the person of the Holy Ghost to empower his people and his church. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And that's very important, by the way. 
The day of Pentecost, it says here in the passage, now when, he was the, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that they heard every man, uh, they heard every man, every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? I said, how in the world are we hearing in our own language? God had given them a message, and that message is being proclaimed, and it doesn't matter what part of the world that they were from. They had gathered there in, in Jerusalem, and now they hear in their own language the wonderful words of life. We see that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been foretold. The Lord Jesus himself had told the disciples that he would come. He had foretold the coming of a comforter. In John chapter 14, verse 16, turn there, would you please? John chapter 14, verse 16 through 18. In John chapter 14, verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples and he makes the statement, he says, for I will pray the Father. Basically, I'm going to pray to the Father and he says, and he shall give you another comforter. What's he saying? I'm your comforter now. I'm with you while you're on this earth. While I am here, you can turn to me. While I am here, you can ask me. While I am here, I can instruct you. While I am here, I'll take care of your needs. But hold on, Jesus isn't going to be there for long. And he says, and he shall give you, the Father shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Jesus is simply saying, hey, he's going to send another comforter, but let me tell you, it's going to be the Holy Spirit, but it's me in the person of the Holy Spirit. I will be with you. I will come unto you. I will once again be fellowshipping with you as you understand fellowship even this moment. In John chapter 16, verse 13, he goes on to say, how be it when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will shew you things to come. It's interesting, isn't it, that even the third person of the Godhead does not have the liberty to say what he chooses to say. He doesn't have the right to teach what he wants to teach. He doesn't have the authority to say, you know what, I think you ought to do this, or I think you ought to do that, or I believe you should do that. Wait, he's the third person of the Trinity. He is God himself, and yet he submits himself to the Father. How much more should you and I keep our, our, our opinions to ourselves, keep our ideas to ourselves, keep our own thoughts to ourselves, and simply share the Word of God with people? We see that the Holy Spirit of God was promised. And on the day of Pentecost, we recognize that he shows up now. And evidence of his coming is the, the tongues. And again, we're going to skip that portion of the message. And uh, we're going to move on in to some other things. We're going to see that the church is being empowered now by the Holy Spirit. He had told them to wait for the promise of the Father. And now the promise had arrived. Again, tongues was just a sign again that that indeed had transpired and taken place. That now, not only had they been witnesses of Jesus Christ from the time that he began his public ministry, right on through his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension, but now they were empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Just like he told them they would be. So what of the message that was shared that day? Turn, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 22, please. Acts, chapter 22, or 2, verse 22. We know that Peter ultimately is the, the man that is highlighted in this process. He's the one that gets the attention. However, it's 
clear from the passage that there were others speaking as well. But now Peter's going to step up and really lay down the law, so to speak. He's going to give it to him straight. His voice is going to become the spokes voice or the spokesperson of this movement. Watch what happens here in Acts 2, 22 and 23. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken, and by wicked hands have ye crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Man, I mean, there's so many things in this passage that we need to remember and be focused on that he's reminding the Jew now. And you need to understand this and, and recognize the fact that they had just crucified Christ. This is not something that's happening 20 years later. It's really happening soon. We're talking about just 50 days prior. He says to them, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Wouldn't we be wise to hear the word of God? Man, how important it is that we don't dismiss this precious book and the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, ye men and women, hear the words of our Lord. Listen to what he has to say. Though there's all kinds of voices in the world that we can listen to, but my friend, there's no more powerful voice, no more true voice than the one that we read of in the Scriptures. And by the way, can I tell you again, just because the Holy Spirit lives in you, don't think for a moment He will tell you anything that goes contrary to that book right there. If you're doing anything that's contrary to the Word of God, my friend, you have dismissed the book because the Holy Spirit, don't blame Him, don't say the Lord told me. Don't say I prayed about it. Just simply say, I've disobeyed God. Because the word of God says that the Holy Spirit of God will not speak of his own. He will only say those things which he is authorized to say through the word of God. Because that is God speaking to you and I today. Boy, that book is a precious book because it is literally the Word of God. And it is the way in which God communicates to you and I as humanity. It's the way that He reaches out to us. It's the way that He instructs us and encourages us. We need a familiarization with that book that exceeds all other familiarities. Amen. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. God approved of this man, he says to them. I don't care that you crucified him. I'm telling you, God approved of him. And how do we know that that's the case? What's the Bible tell us? How does the Bible tell us that we know that he was approved of God? He was approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. Once again, that Jews we're going to see requires a sign. And the fact is, is that he says he was approved of God. You want to know how we know he's approved of God? Because he did many miracles and he did many mighty works. That's how we know. Man, he raised, he, he, he healed the blind and he, he, he healed the sick and he raised the dead. And I can tell you, if you just look at it, there he is. There's Jesus. He's more than a mere man. He's God in flesh and he has the stamp of approval of God on his life. And Peter's reminding these men and women, young men and young ladies, that indeed, this Jesus of Nazareth, this man you call him, was a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. You've seen it. You've heard all the miracles. You've observed what Jesus Christ did. Do I need to go through all of those examples again? No, I don't think so. You seen with your own eyes. Him, verse 23, being delivered by the determinate counsel. We remember, there he goes before that mock trial, those, that, 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 and there the judges uh, sit on, uh, over Jesus Christ as though they can judge God. <laughs> but they thought they could. They saw him as a mere man. They saw him as a false prophet. 
And there, they determine a council. They stood there. What's it mean they or sat there? The determinate council. They were determined to consider him or count him guilty. They were determined to sentence him to death. They were determined that he wasn't who he claimed to be. And he was being delivered by the determinate council. But here's the fun part, and here's the wonderful part. And foreknowledge of God. Oh, you didn't do this, guys. God wasn't taken by surprise. Jesus knew long before he ever arrived in Jerusalem, he would be taken captive, that he would ultimately be placed before this mock trial, that he would endure the shame and, and, the, and the ugliness of humanity. He knew all of that ahead of time. You don't think that the council's the one that ultimately put him on trial and had him go to the cross? No, God's the one that had him put on trial and ultimately went to the cross. And Jesus of Christ, Jesus Christ himself laid his life down. Nobody took it from him. Man, it was the foreknowledge of God. He knew already. You didn't do this. God had determined this. Even though the, the council had determined it, I want you to know, he was delivered by the foreknowledge of God as well because God knew this had to happen. Ye have taken. He goes on, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken. And by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Man, those words ring so loud in our ears even to this day. Crucify him. Crucify him. And I'm telling you, they didn't go, crucify him. Crucify that guy. They said, crucify him! Crucify him! You say, that's, that's scary. Let me tell you what, it would have been a horrible sight. We get the idea that it was like, crucify him! Crucify him! No, they were so angry, they wanted him dead more than they could think about anything else. All they wanted was him dead. Man, I'm telling you, they were so angry at God. They hated him. And can I tell you, one day in hell, you will shake your fist at God in that same anger. You will shake your fist at God if you end up in a place called hell. But thank God you don't have to go there. You don't need to be angry at God because he ultimately deals out the consequences of sin and you end up in a place called hell because you failed to receive and accept his son. You don't have to be angry with God and think he's unjust. He is a just God. Just simply receive his son. But if you don't, you will curse God in hell. You won't beg for mercy. You'll curse God in hell. Oh, God, please get me out. No, you'll get tired of that real fast. It, it'll be like your child that's, if he's not disciplined or they're not disciplined. Mommy, can I have ice cream? No. Mommy, please let me have ice cream. No. Mommy, let me have ice cream. No. Mommy, give me ice cream. Right? How long will it take the sinner before he's waving his fist and not asking for mercy? It won't be long. And that's exactly what happened that day before the, after the, as the council said, we, we know you ain't letting him go. You may not find fault in him, Pilate, but we do. And we want him dead. Crucify him! Wow. And the Bible says, and that's, he's pretty clear here, him being delivered, verse 23, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. There's no righteousness. There was no justice. It was just wickedness. Verse 24, whom God hath raised up. <laughs> he didn't stay dead. You guys thought you had him. You didn't have nothing. Matter of fact, you played right into his game plan. And God raised him up, having loosed the pains of sin, of death, excuse me, because it was not possible that he should be holding of it. You honestly thought you were going to put him in that grave and he was going to stay there? That's impossible, fellas. That's impossible, ma'am, sir. That's impossible. God can't die. You put him in the grave, but he rose again the third day. I want you to look at verse 32 now. Chapter 2, verse 32. We're going to skip a couple verses. And what we're skipping is extremely good. We just don't have time to, to address it. But look what he says now in Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Peter still speaking, a spokesman on behalf of God before these people. This Jesus. And he's talking to Jews, by the way. 
That's who he's talking to. He's ripping them. He's digging deep, but he's giving them truth. Truth does hurt sometimes. He said, how, how did he say that without offending them? You tell me, because I don't think he could have. Do you know the only thing that kept them from being offended in the end is that they accepted what he said as truth. We see another picture of someone sharing truth in the book of Acts, chapter 7, by the name of Stephen. He tells them the exact same thing, basically, but they don't receive it well. And what do they do? They drag him out. They gnaw on him with their teeth, drag him out of the city, and stone him to death. Well, you should have had a little... Stephen, that's all your fault. As the man of God, you should have been a little more sensitive to the culture. You should have understood that what you were saying was really going to... Well, you could have said it maybe differently. Uh, No. We don't see God at any point chastising Stephen for his message or the way he even presented it. He simply gave the truth. As a matter of fact, at the end of his message, they look on him and it's like an angel. He's like, his face is lit up. He's all happy, filled with joy, as they're gnawing on him. You can have the best attitude in the world, but when you share truth with the lost and dying world, they're just going to get offended unless they accept the truth. It's going to happen. That's all there is to it. I have people ask me sometimes, how do you say this without offending someone? Well, you say it as kindly as you can, but really it's up to them whether they're offended or not. You say, that's mean and nasty. I don't know how else you say it kindly. What do you do? What? So you don't tell the truth then. You lie to them so that they're not offended. You you, you can't do that either, right? Because then that makes you worse than them. You know the truth, and you're still not following it. That's crazy. This Jesus, verse 32. Jesus, this Jesus hath God raised up. He raised him up. Again, he points back to the resurrection here, and he says, wherefore, we all are witnesses. Isn't that, wait a second. If I'm not mistaken, isn't that the goal? Because over in the book of Acts, it says here in verse 1, verse 8, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Witnesses unto him. And that's exactly what he now says, Peter's saying now to the crowd, to these Jewish people, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. We saw him alive. Man, in in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we go on to see that there was over 500 that saw Jesus Christ alive at one time. He had resurrected and he went about doing what he did to prepare and ready the disciples. And man, people were seeing him all over the place. And he says, this Jesus, verse 32 hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, we know that Jesus Christ went back to to sit at the right hand of the Father. We know that he's back there in heaven now. He's waiting, so to speak, and sitting on his throne and preparing to make his way back down to receive the church up and ultimately come back after seven years of tribulation and establish his kingdom on earth for the millennial reign. He's waiting. People often say, well, I, when I die, like Stephen, I can't wait for Jesus to step down off the throne and reach down and take me up. I don't believe Jesus is standing anymore. I believe he's seated like the Bible says. I believe he was standing because that day in Acts chapter 7, as he was preaching to those Jewish leaders, he was hoping they would accept and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as an individual Savior, but as a national Savior. And I think Jesus was prepared to come down and open up and take over the kingdom right then and assume his rightful place on the throne of David. But they rejected him again. They just said, three strikes and you're out. All the way in chapter 11 of the book of Matthew, we see them turning their back on Jesus Christ and saying that the works he did were that of Beelzebub. Then we see them turning it over here right in the end of the Gospels. We see them crucifying Jesus Christ on Calvary and saying, crucify him. We want nothing to do with him. And then finally in Acts chapter 7, three strikes and you're out. They had another chance, but they chose to reject the Lord Jesus. And he said, all right then, you Jews want nothing to do with me. I'll move on to the Gentile. 
Would he have given the Gentile a chance to be saved? Without doubt. It's part of God's word. Matter of fact, he tells us, even in the Old Testament, that would have opened up. I don't know exactly how he'd have done it, but it would have worked out somehow, some way, because God always has a way. But Jesus is seated now. He's seated in the heavenlies. And he's at the right hand of God, and he's exalted. He's not exalted on the earth yet, but he is exalted in heaven. And having received the Father, having received of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. He says, man, he's back there. He's back with the Father. He's being exalted like he ought to be. And today, as we gather here, I want you to know that the promise that he gave us of the Father, the Holy Ghost, the one that would come and empower us and enable us to fulfill the work and calling of God, it's happened. You're witnesses of it. You're seeing it firsthand. You're here. And we know that he saved it, mortalized it in the word of God for us. The church was empowered that day. The church now was capable and able to go forth and be a witness unto him. The church was able to face every obstacle that Satan would throw at their feet and in their path because they had the power of the Holy Ghost in their life. It's, it's, it's wonderful to know that when we come to Jesus Christ and we finally acknowledge our sin before a holy, righteous God, and we beg his mercy and forgiveness. Oh, Lord Jesus, I know I deserve hell, and I know that I ought to be there, but Lord, I don't want to go. Forgive me and save me. Come into my life. I know you're the only one that can do that for me. You died for me. You paid for my sin, and I want you to do that in my life. Pay for mine. I accept what you did as payment, and I accept you into my life as Savior. You may not say it quite like that, but all you do is call out to him, cry out to him. When he hears you, he saves you. And immediately, it's like simultaneously, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. Yeah. Oh, they had an experience, a Pentecost experience that day. But my friend, you and I have a Pentecost experience. The moment we receive and accept Jesus Christ, he literally moves into us. He takes up residency in our heart and life. If you know Christ as your Savior and you claim to be a Christian, then you have God living in you. God that created the universe lives inside you. And he lives in me. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. They said they're drunken. This guy's been drinking. They started real early this morning, obviously. They don't make any sense. Listen to that stupid stuff they're saying. And all of a sudden, everybody said, whoa, wait, 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 I hear that in my own language. Well, that's not an unintelligible language. That's my language. And he says, let me explain to you, this is not a bunch of drunkards that just got a little tipsy this morning. This is a bunch of believers that now are empowered and filled with the Holy Ghost. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. Amen. So what's the outcome then? Turn to chapter 2, verse 40. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Let's just read through verse 47. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, 
and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man hath need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You say, what was the result? I'll tell you, first of all, 3,000 were saved and baptized. That sounds like a pretty good, turn, pretty good return on your investment. 3,000 saved and baptized, verse 41. Verse 42, there was fellowship around the word of God and among fellow saints. I mean, there was fellowship. Isn't that funny? They couldn't get enough of each other. Most of us get too much just coming to a service or two. They, they wanted to be closer and together more than anything. Number, verse 43, notice that there were more signs and wonders that are taking place now. Now, again, we don't have the time to address it, but tonight maybe we'll get into it some, but you understand there's a transition that's taking place. We, we find ourselves going from the Old to the New Testament. We find ourselves going from God dealing with the Jew to dealing with the Gentile. We see God in the Old Testament working under an administration of law. Now we see him working through grace. There's a transition taking place from that Old to the New Testament. And can I tell you once again, that transition is taking place primarily through the Jew because it was to the Jew first. And can I tell you that in the midst of that transition, the one thing the Jew had to have in order to be confident that it was of God was a sign. And so we see here in verse 43... And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Verse 44, we see something else that was happening that's so wonderful. And all that believed were together and had all things common. There's unity. Boy, I'll tell you what, if there is one thing that's going to destroy the church in this day and age in which we live, like any other day and age, not just this day and age, it's division. If there's one thing, God hates division. He hates it. Matter of fact, in the book of Proverbs chapter 6, we read about that. He hates it. He despises it. It's an abomination to him. But the devil wants unity too, by the way. Better make sure what we're unifying around. Be careful. Make sure we're, hey, boy, the, he's good. That's the buzzword all the time. Well, this administration divides. This administration divides. They're causing division. You're causing division. You're causing division. You're causing division. Anybody in power knows that united we stand, divided we fall. Can I tell you, God knows that, but also the devil does too. The difference is, is that God wants to unite us around him and his word. The devil wants to unite us around him and his word. Make sure you're following the right God and the right book. I guarantee you, it's not the internet that's going to give you your answers. It's going to be the word of God. Be real careful who you listen to and who you follow. Christ, notice in verse 45 now, he goes on to say, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. They had Christ-like compassion and Christ-like sacrificial attitudes on behalf of one another. They were willing to sacrifice themselves for others. Do you know what most of us want? Someone to sacrifice for us. Bring it on. Show me what you're going to do for me. I'm in this church, what are you going to do for me? Come on, pastor, what's the church going to do for me? Listen, you're right. You have, you have the right to have some expectations concerning the church. But make sure that your expectations are scripturally, are bound in the scriptures. Make sure it's not something that's unscriptural. The church is not here to be your, 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 your constantly hold you and hug you like this. We can't do that. He is, the Lord Jesus is. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will lift me up, it says. I'm telling you that too many times we think the church is responsible for our comfort, for our well-being, for our peace, for our com everything in our lives. I'm telling you the church can't do that for you. Only Jesus can. Can I tell you when you're laying on your deathbed, the pastor may come in and say a prayer, but friend, it's going to be Jesus you better be holding on to or you're going to be scared out of your mind. It won't be the church that delivers you out of that. It's going to be Jesus Christ. He's the one that's going to offer his hand, so to speak, and take you through the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. You better have Christ on your side. 
You better know in whom you believe. You better have a confidence in him and who he is. Yeah, the church is there, and we should encourage one another. We should help one another. We are to gather together even more as we see the day approaching, the Bible says. As Christ's return comes, we ought to be wanting to be together more. We shouldn't be looking for things to keep us out of church. We should be looking for reasons to come to church. And the truth is, let persecution start like it was going on in the early church, and we won't have any problem filling this up in secret somewhere. We'll be together if you're really serious about your faith, and we'll be hidden downstairs in a basement somewhere having a service, and the preacher will be preaching in the basement, and you'll be gathering, and then we'll be going out maybe one or two at a time so it doesn't look like there's a huge gathering. We'll be parking around the whole block so it doesn't look like we're all together because we're fearful for the authorities coming in and hauling us off to prison like they did the early church. But you'll want church then because without it, you won't have the strength to stand on your own. You'll need each other. You say, I'll just have God. You need each other. The church is still here. You're right. There are still some expectations that the church has to fulfill, and that's fellowship. We need to be together. You find that together. Verse 46, notice what they did. Again, this is the outcome of this. This is amazing what's happening here. And they, continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. These guys weren't having church once a week. They were meeting together every day. To, man, they were, they were doing things on a regular, consistent basis. They were fellowshipping joyfully. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They praised the Lord. They saw fruit in obedience here. People are still getting saved. Lives are being transformed and changed, even though the culture was not always friendly toward them. Early on, I'm sure that they found themselves in a place where even, even uh, the, 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 the Roman government was kind of like, what's going on here? But it wouldn't be long before the Roman government said, this is a real problem here. Because it's blowing up fast. I mean, 3,000 in one day, and then the Bible goes on to talk about multitudes. I mean, 5,000 being saved in, in one, one preaching service a little later on. Wow, that's crazy stuff. Man, there's thousands being saved. Guarantee you, the Roman government took notice, and so did the Judaizers. And I'll tell you what, they weren't real pleased with that. So the day came, and the church was empowered and began to operate in the power of the Holy Ghost. See, the Lord ascended back and he left his disciples with a promise. He left them with a command. The promise, you will receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. The command, ye shall be witnesses unto me. And that's what Peter said they were. Even in his message there, we're witnesses. And if you're being honest, you Jews that are here today, the majority of you that are here, if you're not from a distant land, and even if you are, you've heard the stories. You know the truth. Maybe you came in the last couple of years to Jerusalem and you saw and heard about him as well. You're witnesses too. Don't play that. We know you know. Now let's just own it. And this idea of being a witness, and he told them that they're to be a witness around the world, that seemed like an impossible task, especially in light of the opposition that they did face. Reach the world with the gospel? Are you kidding? Tell everybody about Jesus? No way. That could have easily been their attitude. They knew Jesus Christ, and they were all in. But that in and of itself wasn't enough. They needed a supernatural touch. They required a heavenly anointing. Their task demanded God himself, the Holy Spirit. Speaking to a large audience, D.L. Moody held up a glass, and he asked, how can I get the air out of this glass? How can I get the air out of this glass? One man shouted, suck it out with a pump! Moody said, well, that would create a vacuum and shatter the glass. After numerous other suggestions, Moody finally smiled. He picked up a pitcher of water 
and he filled the glass up to the very top. There, he said, all the air is now removed. He then went on to explain that victory in the Christian life is never accomplished by sucking out a sin here and there, but by being filled with the Spirit of God. Listen, God is looking for a people, A.W. Tozer said this, God is looking for people through whom he can do the impossible. What a pity that we plan only the things we can do by ourselves. The early church had to have the Holy Spirit. And the Lord said, don't you do anything yet. You guys are so qualified. You have all the tools needed to be successful, but you lack one thing. You lack the fuel, the power. You got all the X's and O's, but you need the power. And that day in Pentecost, he sent the Holy Ghost down, and now they were able to fulfill their sole purpose, the redemption and restoration of all mankind throughout the world by presenting Jesus, who died, was buried, and rose again the third day. Because, see, it's not enough to give simply the message the Holy Spirit has to take it and plant it in their heart. You're a child of God today, I wonder. I just wonder, how familiar are you with the Holy Spirit of God today? He lives inside you, I understand that. And you are saved eternally. No question of that. Do you find yourself praying? I know I do. Lord, allow your spirit to bear witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. I just want to know in my heart again that you haven't left me. I know, I know here, but I want to know God's there all the time. I want to know I'm letting him lead me. Not just that he's in my life as, a, as the Lord. He's just the Holy Spirit indwelling me. I want to know he's in charge. I want to know that when I take a step, it's me allowing him to direct it, not me taking that step. Make sure, Lord, let your spirit bear witness with my spirit that I'm your child and that you're, you're, I'm, in, I'm being led by you. I want you to be controlling me. Let me ask you, tomorrow when you go to work, will you let the Holy Spirit control your tongue? When you go to school, will you let the Holy Spirit control your attitude? When you sit in the classroom, whether it's homeschool or at, at, at the, the, the grade school, will you submit to the leadership the way the Holy Spirit would want you to? Will you follow through and do your assignments as you ought to? Will you have a good attitude toward those who maybe don't show you a right attitude? Will you let the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Will you allow that to rule your life, His fruit? Man, as believers, sometimes I think we're acting and going about life in our own strength, doing things the best we can. We need to give it up to Him, yield ourselves to the Lord Jesus and to the Spirit of God in our life. You don't know Christ as your Savior. Can I tell you that when they cried crucify him, you might as well have been standing in the crowd that day because your sin continues to cry out crucify him because as long as he lives, he can condemn me. You don't want condemned. Neither do I. But you can't kill him, remember? They tried to, and he what? Rose again. Can I tell you Jesus is alive? The only way you escape the condemnation of sin is to receive and accept him yourself. Let him be your friend. There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, and that's Jesus Christ. Won't you call on him today? Won't you ask him to forgive you and to come into your life and save you this morning? You'll never regret that decision. Do not leave here without Jesus today. Father, we come to you.
We thank you for this time we've had together in your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. We pray, Lord, that you would walk these aisles and move into every seed and convict and move us, Father. Help us to realize a need to be yielded to your spirit and allow you to have control of our life on a daily, regular basis. And, Father, as a child of God, help us, Father, never to take matters in our own hands, but let you to have the leadership. And, Father, there may be those that are without Christ today. They need you right now. I pray that, Father, they would recognize your Holy Spirit convicting their heart of sin and expressing the need that they have to trust and receive you as Savior right now. We'll thank you, praise you for it. With every head bowed, I wonder, would you say, preacher, I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. 